0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Dylan Walker, and I serve in communion. Uh, Today we're going to be reading in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. Please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dylan. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Shay Sumlin. If I haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. And I'd love to invite you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. uh, This morning, we are going to look at three chapters in Genesis. My goal is to get us out of here by the time the Rangers start tonight. If not, by the Cowboys tomorrow night. We'll be fine. Um, No, in reality, um, these, these three chapters, chapters 42 to 44... They really could be just one long chapter in Genesis because what takes place in these three chapters are, it's all one connected story revolving around one central theme. And it is the theme of of guilt and repentance, which is what we just read from 2 Corinthians. We'll show in a minute why that text, I think, bears weight on this text that we're in today. We're going to do something a little different here than I'm normally used to. We're going to skip some rocks because we've got a lot of text to cover here. Skip some rocks through these chapters. Uh, Summarizing some of the major movements here and then zeroing in on just a few passages that help draw out these themes of guilt and repentance that we're meant to see in this story and uh, that will culminate in chapter 44. Uh, Last week, if you weren't with us, we saw Joseph, an imprisoned Hebrew slave, who's been in captivity uh, for about um, 13 years at at that point, within a matter of minutes, becomes the second highest ruler in all of Egypt because God used him to interpret two confusing dreams of the Pharaoh at the time. And in doing so, not only gave a favorable interpretation, but an application about this great famine that's about to come and, and how God would use this interpretation application to bring about not only Egypt's rescue in this famine, but all the surrounding nations as well. And so Joseph is now exalted uh, just at the time that this famine breaks in. And you see at the very end of chapter 41, the very last verse of chapter 41, verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, namely to Joseph, in order to buy grain because the famine was so severe all over the earth. And so now what happens um, is this great encounter that we've been waiting on for 20 years, since chapter 37 of Joseph's brothers encountering Joseph for the very first time. And you see here, word of this famine makes its way all the way into the land of Canaan, modern day Israel, Verse one of chapter 42, when Jacob learned that there was now grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so what happens here, it's been 20 years, 20 years since Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery. 20 years. And the question is, that many of us would be probably curious if we were around them at this time, is do they still think about it? Are they bothered by what they did? These last 20 years, have they felt any guilt, any sorrow about what they've done? Or have they just wiped this from their memory and tried to move on? But the answer is there in verse one. When Jacob lets them know, hey, we're under great famine. There's grain for sale in Egypt. I need you boys to go down there to Egypt. Why is it when I mentioned the word Egypt, y'all started looking at each other? Why is it all of a sudden y'all are like, this is some weird thing when I mention Egypt. This is what we call a guilty conscience. Because we find out there that as soon as Jacob mentions that, they, they, they look at each other because they feel guilty about what they did. Now they don't know if Joseph's still in Egypt or not. They don't know if he's alive or not, but they do know that that's where they sent him and they know what Egypt means. They may not have to face Joseph in their mind if they go down to Egypt, but the simple mention of Egypt does mean that they're going to have to face their guilty conscience. God is not letting them go from what they did. God is going to continually remind them because God has a purpose in leading them back to repentance and reconciliation and restoration. That's what God desires. But they're stirred by a guilty conscience here. In fact, they had never forgotten. David tells us, by the way, King David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, had an affair with her and had her husband murdered, David tells us in Psalm 32 what it feels like when you hide your sin and you don't confess it for a long time. Psalm 32, David says this, for when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up like the heat of summer. Like it's a heavy thing. When I try to hide my sin, when I try to go silent with it and act like it doesn't exist, I couldn't, it was ever before me. Now, what we're gonna find out is that this heavy feeling, this concept of conviction or guilt over sin is actually meant by God to be a good thing. The enemy wants to use it for just more shame and condemnation. God wants to use that guilt to lead us towards repentance. It's a gift of God to feel guilt for the non-believer, there is a universal guilt that God has woven into our image that he made us in, in the likeness of himself. There is a conscience, Romans 1 says, that should convict us over right and wrong. Even if you've never been given the law of God, you know it within you. Uh, it's the old adage that headhunters, while they, while they have no problem hunting other people's heads, they don't want their heads hunted. There's an internal compass within us that says something's Something can only go so far. And that's a good gift that God has given us. To the Christian, there's an even double portion of that gift because in trusting in Jesus Christ, we are sealed and indwelled with the Holy Spirit who is our comforter and convictor. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us because God doesn't want us to be like Adam in Genesis 3 where we just hide and and act like it's not there he wants us to come out into the light he wants us to repent want to confess our sin and come into the light and turn from it and so we can turn towards him and find our forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus Christ now what you're going to see okay spoiler alert is that over 20 years Joseph has not harbored bitterness Joseph has not harbored wrath towards what his brothers did to him because he has encountered the living God at every step of the way. God has walked with him. He, he understands now the providence of God that is over all these horrible situations and the presence of God that has gone with him And so he's tasted of that grace, he's tasted of that mercy, and now he's so filled with it, he wants to give it away to his brothers. What you're gonna find in chapter 45 is Joseph is brimming right now with the desire to forgive his brothers and to enjoy reconciliation with them. But what we're gonna learn in these three chapters is that you cannot experience true reconciliation without repentance, without owning what you've done and handing it over to God. You cannot experience true reconciliation, which means you're gonna to have to face your sin. You're gonna to have to face the guilt of your sin. And so sure enough, these 10 brothers minus Benjamin, Jacob will not let Benjamin go. He's already lost one son through Rachel. He's gonna hold on to the only other one he has through Rachel, which is Benjamin, the youngest. He's gonna keep him there in Canaan, but he's gonna send these brothers, 10 of them, to go down into Egypt. And in God's sovereignty, there in verse six, they encounter Joseph. Now, they don't know they're encountering Joseph. They encounter the prince of Egypt. They, they, they Certainly, when they see Joseph for the very first time in 20 years, they don't know who he is. Why would they? Because, I mean, it's been 20 years. All these men now are in their 40s and 50s. It's kind of hard to tell them apart when you get to that age. Everybody's bald and old. And so they're coming down there. Joseph now doesn't even look like a a Hebrew. He's shaved. He's probably got some eyeliner on in Egyptian fashion. He's got dressed in royalty. He's the second highest in command. Why would they expect that's Joseph? And, And he's also speaking through a translator. He's not speaking Hebrew. We're going to find out in this passage. He's having a translator translate to them, even though he can understand everything. So they don't know, but they encountered him and notice at the end of verse six, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him. Where have we seen that before? That were the dreams. Those were the dreams that Joseph dreamt in Genesis 37. Two different dreams about his brothers coming and bowing down before him. And his brothers hated those dreams so much, that's why they sold him into slavery. They didn't like the idea that he was being treated with favor and they were gonna have to submit to him. They didn't like that. But now all of a sudden, 20 years later, This dream comes true. And you see in the following verses, Joseph is just blown away by it. Imagine the weight of Joseph in that moment. Not only laying eyes on your brothers, whom you've wanted to see for the last 20 years, now seeing them, and then they bow before him, and it says that Joseph understood those were his dreams. It came true. God is not a liar. So there's all kinds of emotion, no doubt, in this moment, but. What we're going to see is in verse seven and following and explicitly in verse 15 of chapter 42, Joseph is going to concoct concoct an elaborate plan in order to test them. In these three chapters, there's going to be two major tests that Joseph is going to put before his brothers because he wants to know, have they changed? Have they repented from what they've done? And the two major tests are going to be these. In chapter 42, you're going to see a test. Will they take money at the expense of their brother's life? Simeon. Will they trade Simeon out for money like they did to Joseph in chapter 37? And then in chapter 44, you're going to see the second test. Will they take freedom over their brother's life? Benjamin. Will they trade out Benjamin so that they themselves can go free? These are the two tests that mirror what they did to Joseph in chapter 37. And now Joseph is going to test it with two other brothers here. Had they changed? Do they feel bad about what they've done? Let's look at test number one. Let me just walk you through some of these events and summarize them. Verse nine, Joseph is going to speak harshly to them. And he's going to treat them like spies. He's going to accuse them of being spies. That they've actually just, these tw- these 10 people have come in to like steal secrets in the land and whatnot. And, and they say, no, no, we're not. Verse 11, they're going to say, we're honest men. Oh, really? You're honest men, huh? Tell me more about that. But what they're trying to say is, no, we're not spies. We're all from one family. We're all brothers. And in fact, there is 12 of us. And they're going to say that, Uh, One of them's back home, Benjamin, the youngest, and one is no more. Joseph knows that's him. And they explain that in verse 13. And then in verse 17, what Joseph's gonna do, he's gonna take all 10 of these brothers, he's gonna put them in jail. Gonna give them a few nights to think about some things. Let, uh, Let the spirit of God stir in them. And then in verse 19, he comes up with what will be the plan. I'm gonna leave one of you here in prison. It's going to be Simeon and I'm going to send the rest of you back and you can go back and you're going to fetch your youngest brother, Benjamin, and you're going to bring him back here because if you're not spies and you really are family, then prove it by bringing the other family member back here. All of this. So Joseph, of course, can see his younger brother whom he hadn't seen. And and so will they do this? And so he keeps Simeon there in prison and then While they're there in prison, though, before he sends them out, notice you kind of get an indication of what's going on in their heart in this moment. They're in prison. Joseph's there, and they start talking in Hebrew. They don't think Joseph can understand them. Oh, but he can. And they start talking in Hebrew. Notice what comes out of them when they're in prison. Verse 21 of chapter 42. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, that is Joseph, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They're there talking about this in prison. They realize, why are we in jail right now? Our sins are catching up with us. This is called a recognition and acknowledgement of one's own sin. They're having to face it. And this is them acknowledging the guilt of their sin, that everything that's happening to them right now is not just because of Joseph even, it's because of God. This is like David in Psalm 51, when he confesses against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. No, you sinned against Bathsheba, you sinned against Uriah, her husband. No, 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 I did. But at the end of the day, it was against God that I transgressed and did those things. And that's what's happening right now. They're acknowledging God is doing this. This event has exposed their guilt. Their consciences are now pierced. And so in verse 24, Joseph overhears this conversation and I love what he does. Look at verse 24. As soon as he hears them owning their guilt, saying what we did to Joseph was wrong, Joseph has to pull aside in a private room and he starts bawling. She starts weeping. It's the first of three times in this narrative, Joseph's going to pull aside to cry. He's so filled up with compassion. See, this is what Joseph has always wanted to hear. Joseph isn't waiting for them to say the wrong thing so that he can just zap them. He's waiting for them to say the right thing so that he can forgive them. It's what he feels in this moment. He's so overcome with it. And so in verse 24 and 25, Simeon is held back in captivity. Joseph releases them to head back. They've got bags full of grain because that's why they came down here. They've purchased the grain and they're going back to Jacob so they can try to get Benjamin to come back with them. But notice what happens. Here's the first test on, after all of this, first test. And they take these sacks as they're heading out in verse 24 and 25. And Joseph has their money returned in the sacks, every one of them. And in one sense, you need to know this is an act of grace. Joseph blessing his brothers, freely giving them grain in the time of famine. It's an act of grace. But in reality, it's the first test. Your brother Simeon's here in jail. I just gave you all your money back, all the grain, everything you wanted. Will you take the money at the expense of your brother? Or will you come back demonstrating a repented heart. You see in verse 28, their response. They freak out when they see the money's in their bags. How did this get in here? Now, here's the deal. If they were wicked dudes, they would go, sweet. We got money. We got all this grain for free. Who cares about Simeon? Let's go. It's like you and I, when you find out that you weren't charged for the extra guac at Chipotle, Are you going to walk out in that moment and go, sweet, got the hookup from the Lord. Or, you know what, there's a greater ethic here I might need to speak into. Well, they freak out. They see this as an awful thing. Because in their minds, they're thinking, well, Egypt already thinks we're spies. Now they're going to think we're thieves. And so notice their conclusion at the end of verse 28. They conclude, God has done this to us they perceive all these events, are their sins catching up with them? That God's, this is God's judgment upon us for what we have done to Joseph. He's not letting us go. He's making us face it. Now, be careful in this moment. This, one could also go, oh, this is just karma, right? They're just, they're just evidence. This is not karma. This is not some impersonal force that's just balancing out the yin and the yang of the universe that's coming on you. And what goes around comes around. This is not that. Not every suffering that takes place in our lives is the result of God's judgment upon his people. No, the reality is we live in a world that is fallen, that is under sin's curse. And so we don't have to go looking for suffering. It's gonna find us living in that kind of world. And it doesn't mean that God is always angry at you and coming after you. But in this particular case, as we see in others, there is a God who not in wrath and condemnation, but in love, as C.S. Lewis called the hound of heaven, who loves you and is pursuing you in your sin because it is his kindness to expose it so that you might repent, turn back to him, not to receive condemnation, but to receive his forgiveness and his restoration and reconciliation. It is Paul, as he told the Romans, in Romans chapter two, verse four, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, is a gift of God for us that leads us to repentance that we wouldn't presume upon his, his, his patience and forbearance. No, we would see it as God is giving us time to turn to him and confess our sins that we might be forgiven. In verse 29 through 38, the brothers then return. They make their way back to Canaan, they relay all these things to Jacob, their father. They let him know that, uh-oh, Simeon's down in prison. And uh, in order to get him back, we actually have to bring Benjamin with us now. And Jacob is about to lose his mind. He's like, I've already lost one son. Now you're telling me one's in prison. And now you want me to give up the third one in order to get him back? Uh-uh. And Reuben's like, hey, if something happens to Benjamin, you can take my kids. Jacob goes, I don't want your kids. I want everything as is, we're not doing it. And so they just stay there in Canaan and they're going to leave Simeon there. Jacob's going to leave Simeon there. You see the role of favoritism playing out again. I want to protect Benjamin at all costs, but I I'm going to let the other sons fend for themselves. It's a tragic theme of favoritism that keeps playing up. And remember, last time we saw the favoritism with Joseph, it was Judah who stepped up and sold him into slavery. Because Judah didn't like uh, favorites. Judah didn't want to sit and watch somebody else be honored, not him. The question is in chapter 43, is will Judah's heart change? Because the famine gets so bad that Jacob has to begin considering letting them take Benjamin back to Egypt. And Judah steps up to try to convince his father why he should. And listen to this in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 43, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you see that Judah is a changed man in this moment? This isn't the Judah of chapter 37 who would just give up Joseph for his own interest. This is Judah now stepping up going, Father, entrust your youngest to me. I'm gonna take care of him. And if anything happens, I'm gonna take sole responsibility for him. He's, he's, he's taking responsibility, he's evidencing the fact that he's a changed man right here. More to come in a moment. In verse fifteen or 11 through 15, Jacob agrees, they send Benjamin and so they pack a gift here to take back to the prince of Egypt um, along with extra money to pay back for the grain and, and along with Benjamin as well. In verse 16, chapter 43, they arrive in Egypt And they're met by Joseph's steward, his kind of chief in command, his steward. And they would probably expect going back into Egypt, oh, this isn't going to go well for us, man. They know, they think we're spies. They think we're thieves. They're going to put us in prison with Simeon. And they're met by the steward who the first thing he wants to do is throw them a lavished banquet. Come with me. And he brings them into Joseph's palace And he's gonna set before them a nice meal. Now they think it's a trap. And so they start pleading for mercy going, no, no, listen, we didn't steal the money. It just showed up in our sacks. I promise you. And the steward just says to them in verse 11 through 15, the steward says, no, 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 don't worry. The money's a gift. Your God has been gracious to you. Receive his grace. Just lavish his grace all over them in spite of what they're perceived to have, been, have done. So just bathed in grace. And, 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 and so in verse 26, Joseph then shows up at the meal. And I want you to notice what his brothers do and what Joseph does. Verse 26 and 28, the brothers bow down to him. Two times we see that. Once again, Joseph dream is on display here. They're they're doing what God said was gonna happen. But then in verse 29, Joseph lays eyes on Benjamin for the very first time. He sees his younger brother, his biological brother of Rachel. And in verse 30, don't miss this, in verse 30, Joseph, after seeing Benjamin, hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Second time we see him turn aside so he can go bawl his eyes out. Don't, don't sleep on the, the heart of mercy and compassion that is fueling Joseph in this moment. His heart has not stored up bitterness all these years, but rather a wellspring of compassion. And so after he composes himself, he, he returns and he has them sit down for dinner. And here's, this is crazy. Look in verse 33. I want you to notice how Joseph seats his brothers. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the younger, youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Did you catch what just happened here? Joseph has them sit down for dinner. He goes, hey, I'm gonna, I am gonna picked out some name cards for you. Just go sit down. They sit down in birth order. 11 brothers are sat in birth order. How does this guy know our ages and what order we're in? And what's interesting is then as they sit down, they start bringing out the meal and they're bringing all this food out and they set food before every brother. But when they get to Benjamin, they bring five times the amount of food for Benjamin a quintuple portion of blessing on the youngest, not all the others. You got to understand what's happening here. These are not accidents. Joseph is priming the pump for the second test. The first test was, will you take money at the expense of your brother's life? They've proven that they they won't. They've proven that they've repented. They've come back. They want their brother's life. It's not about the money. And now the second test is being primed right here. He's doing these things because he wants to draw out with them. Who is this guy? This prince of Egypt who knows our birth order and sits us in that order. Who, who is this, you know, this, all this is happening. That you, you, you think about it, when you line up the 11 brothers there, he already told him you have 12 brothers. It's a very obvious picture that one is missing. And Joseph is priming this pump, but more than anything, when he brings out the quintuple portion for Benjamin, I think he's wanting to see, are they jealous? Will jealousy take their heart once again and lead them to betray their brother? This is the pump that Joseph is priming right here. And so it's right on the heels of this, chapter 44, the second test comes. Joseph, after this... uh, this meal takes place. Notice what happens at verse one of chapter 44. The next day, essentially, he commands the steward of the house, I want you to fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Go and give them their money back again. And I want you to put my cup, my silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Joseph is gonna plant his famous silver cup in the bag of Benjamin the youngest so that he can get caught and it will look like he's stealing. This will be the second test on the rest of the brothers. The silver cup's important though. The silver cup was famous in Egypt for the Pharaohs and for their right-hand men. It was called the Diviner's Cup. It's oftentimes what the Pharaohs and their uh, second commands would use very expensive cup to try and determine the future. Um, oftentimes what some would describe is they'd fill it with their drink and they would put like a leaf in it, whichever way it pointed was kind of the direction that was being revealed by the gods. Um, it's similar to what you see with the Romans uh, in the first century with casting lots to try to determine um, uh, God's will. Uh, for us, it's you know maybe it's the magic eight ball you know shake up you know trying to determine whatever it is. We're, we're not sure that Joseph even used this cup because clearly God is the one who reveals His will to Joseph. He doesn't need a mediator of divination. But here, it's the correlation in this text that we're meant to see of this cup with something else. What was it Joseph was sold for in chapter thirty-seven? 20 silver coins. What is it Benjamin is going to be given for? A silver cup. These parallels are on purpose. Joseph is testing them. And and what happens in in verse three, Joseph sends his servant to then bust him and then they they find it uh, that's gonna be there in, uh, in their sack And Joseph, through his servant, is gonna tell him in verse 10, "Whoever sack that we find this cup in, that person is going to be my slave and the others can go free. This is the test. Will you take your freedom at the expense of Benjamin's life, just like you took your freedom at the expense of my life in chapter 37? Or will you in this moment Own your sin. 20 years ago, you sold your youngest brother for silver. Will you do it again? Or will you own your own sin and do the right thing? In verse 14, the brothers come. They're now all taken in. The brothers come and they bow in desperation before Joseph. And I want you to hear what Judah says. Judah in verse 16 Judas says to Joseph, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and, all, and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Did you catch what he just confessed there? God has found out our guilt What he's confessing there, notice he's not confessing guilt of stealing the cup. He knows they didn't do it. He is confessing the greater sin of what they have done to Joseph. This isn't about the prince of Egypt finding the silver cup in a bag. This is about God finding out the sin of what we have done to Joseph. And he's confronting us with it in this moment. And don't miss this. I mean, he's essentially saying Um, we may not be guilty of this crime, but I promise you we dang sure are guilty of a higher one. And notice how chapter 42 begins: we are honest men. Notice how chapter 44 concludes, we are guilty men. No blame shifting, no excuses, no justifying, no rationalizing, no defending, no trying to manage the situation right here just owning their sin before God. I can just imagine the scene, Jonah, Judah just breaking here. When I've held this inside for 20 years, I cannot hold this any longer. I'm not gonna continue going forward with the weight of my sin on me. My bones are wasting away as in the heat of the summer day. I can't keep silent about it anymore. I'm guilty. I don't care what happened with this cup. I'm guilty before God. Against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. And then what follows next is yet the clearest indication of Judah's repentance and transformation. Maybe the clearest conveyance you're even gonna see in all of scripture. Judah, starting in verse 18 um, and following, is gonna speak to Joseph. Joseph. It's the longest speech given uh, by Judah in the entire account of Genesis. And essentially what he does, notice the first few verses in 18 and following. Judah went up to him and said, can I speak um, a word in your ear, essentially? Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord, that is you, you asked us, your servants, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, yeah, we have a father, An old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age, his brother's dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children and a father loves him. What Jude is going to say in the next several verses, 14 times he's going to mention his father. 12 times he's going to mention his brother, Joseph, the son of his father. His heart is so rent before the Lord and before Joseph in this moment. He's retelling the story to Joseph that Joseph already knows. And he's retelling it and he's telling him, this is what happened. You sent us back and man, I know this is gonna break my father's heart if we had to take Benjamin down here, but we did it anyways because we had to prove to you um, that we're trying to tell you the truth and this. we're trying to do right. And that's why we brought him back. And now this has happened. And if we don't bring Benjamin back, it's going to crush our father. He's going to go to his grave in tears. And then Judas says something so profound in verse 33 and 34. Listen to this. So therefore, please let your servant remain, that's me, instead of the boy. As a servant to my Lord, let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that I would find in my father. Take him or let him go free. Take me. Do you see Judah's repentance here? Judah is the one who in chapter 37 sold Joseph into slavery at no expense to himself. Judah is the one who in chapter 38 wanted to see Tamar executed for her sins at no expense to himself and his sins. But now, after being chased down by the love, the mercy, and the justice of God, after being shown so much grace at the hand of others in his life, Judah is now willing not only to own his sin, but at great expense to himself, offer himself as a substitute for his brother, so that he will go into slavery and his brother will go free. I want you to make a note, this is the first time in the Bible that a man offers his life in exchange for another. It's right here with Judah. I can't even hardly contain myself. Right, I still want to go to chapter 45 right now. I just want to finish this thing. Is it so beautiful? We're going to get to it. But just look at the first few verses at the very least. Joseph could not control himself. Before all who stood before him, he cried, make everyone go out of the room from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so loud that all the Egyptians heard it, including the household of Pharaoh. He's overwhelmed in this moment. Joseph is, this is all he ever wanted to see. He didn't want to see the condemnation of his brothers. He wanted to see the transformation of his brothers. He didn't want to see them sentenced to death. He wanted to see them forgiven, restored, and reconciled. But before reconciliation can come, there must be repentance and he sees it and he's overwhelmed by it. There's a lot we could do with these three chapters. Two things I just want to leave us with. Two things I think you and I have to see as we read 42, 43, and 44 of Genesis. Number one, we need to see Jesus as the true and greater Judah. Judah is the one in this moment who chooses to lay his life down so that his brother can go free. Judah happens to be the one in whom his descendants will come, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Judah, of all the people who God picked to give, to be a prom, uh, uh, primogenitor to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he picks Judah. Who in this moment has been so transformed, he's willing to lay his life down. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus is going to do. But if Judah, who is a guilty sinner, was able to give his life as a substitute for Benjamin so that Benjamin might go free, how much more can you and I trust Jesus Christ, who is sinless, who is the holy, beloved Son of the Father, who came and gave his life as a ransom for many? you feel the weight of these scriptures that talk about the substitution of Jesus for you and I? Isaiah 53 prophesied 700 years before Jesus would even come. We were told this is what the Savior will do for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us our own way, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him, on Jesus Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 It is for our sake that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange that God so loved you and me guilty sinners standing dead in our own tracks nothing we can do Pharaoh you've caught us Joseph you've caught us we're busted Do to us whatever you please, but God in his great mercy sends his son, Jesus Christ, who will take our place in that pit so that you and I might go free. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the substitution of Jesus that we've been given. God loves you, sinner. He loves you so much that he gave one to die for you so that you wouldn't have to die so that you could be forgiven. That is the good news of the gospel that every single one of us in this room needs to hear and embrace today is that Jesus came to save sinners like you and I. He is our great substitute. He is the true and the better Judah. But secondly, what we've got to see is we have to see our need to confess our sin and repent that we might receive that forgiveness and free gift of salvation in Jesus. The good news is that we've been given a substitute. Amen. But we must acknowledge our sin before him. We, like Judah, have to stand before God no defense, no justifying, no rationalizing, no trying to downplay it. Call it what it is. Against you and you alone, O oh Lord, have I sinned. I am guilty. I deserve condemnation. All I can do, O oh God, is plead for your mercy. And then turn from that sin, what God calls sin, we must turn from it and turn to Jesus Christ who is our gracious provision and forgiveness. Understand the hound of heaven loves you too much to let you run too long in your own sin without being pursued. And when he pursues you, when he exposes that sin, you need to know it is painful The discipline of the Lord never feels good in the moment. Having your sins exposed, none of us want that. Nobody wants our our sins teleprompted to the whole world. We want to be like Adam and Eve in the garden, just hide, sew coverings for ourselves, hoping it will never find us. But God loves you too much. And in that pain, when that is exposed, and it will get exposed, if not in this lifetime, you will stand before God most assuredly. And in that moment, though, when God is exposing our sin, we need to understand that moment, that grief that is caused is not the Lord gloating over us in condemnation. No, that grief that is caused is actually the Lord's loving kindness that might lead us to repentance. This is what we read at the beginning of the service. The apostle Paul, he wrote a first letter to the Corinthian church and it was a stinger. First First Corinthians. He didn't have a whole lot of good to say. They had just hijacked the Lord's church and were just absolutely corrupting it. And he writes a very harsh word to them, much like Joseph did with his brothers when he spoke a harsh word to them. It's never easy at first. And it caused them great pain, that letter did. But then he writes them a second time explaining what that pain was for. Listen to this 2 Corinthians 7 9 through 10. As it is, I'm rejoicing not because you are grieved. I'm not relishing in the fact that my letter hurts you for hurting you's sake. No, I'm rejoicing because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is us just feeling sorry that we got caught. We're not truly repentant. We're not sorry for what we did. We're just sorry for the effects that it caused and it stinks, but move on. But that does not lead anywhere. That doesn't change your life. It doesn't transform your life. It doesn't bring freedom. It doesn't bring forgiveness. It just leads to more death. But godly grief, that conviction within you that understands what I've done. and I've sinned against a holy God. It's brought separation. I've transgressed this God. That kind of grief over what I have done is actually a good thing that leads to transformation, that drives you not away from God, but towards God so that you can receive his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness to wash over you and make you new again. That is what God does. Church, let me ask this question. When's the last time that you felt the true weight of conviction over your sin? When's the last time you just came clean with God? No hiding it, no downplaying it, no rationalizing it, no giving it another name, but you just called it what the scriptures call it. And he did. You' just come clean, no matter the consequences, because you'd rather be exposed guilty but in the grace of God than to be hiding and be under his wrath. Oh sinner, come clean. Know the promise. First John 1:9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what he does. You as a believer, remember what Paul said to the Romans, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin has already been paid for at the cross. You just need to come out from hiding to be restored and reconciled in the grace and forgiveness of God. If you are in this room and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand right now, your hiding and lack of repentance of sin is actually storing up more wrath for you in the day of judgment. You don't have an advocate named Jesus who stood in the gap for you. You are choosing to take it all on your own and you will fail that test. But the free gift of God is to come confess your sins, admit you're a sinner like the rest of us. All churches, we're not a bunch of perfect people. We're all hypocrites, but you know who we are? We're beggars telling beggars where the bread is. It's not found in us, it's in Jesus Christ. So join with us. We've got room for a few more hypocrites, come on in. But come and admit your sin, own it. Confess your guilt before a holy God and then receive the free gift of salvation that is in Jesus Christ, that you might have your sins cleansed and forgiven, be made new. And then let us press on together until the day that he returns. It makes all things new. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, where we have sinned against you, Lord, may we not try to hide and defend. Lord, may we confess like Judah did to say we are guilty of our sin, to confess that what else are we gonna do Where else are we going to run? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves, oh God? At the same time, Lord, help us to remember that that's why you sent Jesus, the true and greater Judah, so that he can take our sin for us, that we have a savior who has taken the sin from us that we might receive his righteousness so that we can be cleansed and freed. And oh God, how good that freedom tastes. Forgive us, O Lord, make us new and help us to continue to preach this good news of grace so that other sinners can turn and find their forgiveness too. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.